morning, morning. Welcome to our session. Um, my name is Andrew Zeman. I will be chairing this session. The topic is dividend policy as a key part of capital management for insurers. So, uh, welcome to, uh, to, to this. Our speaker at the session is David Kirk, which uh, is probably well known to many of you. David is a principal with Milliman, runs a South African practice focusing on life and short-term insurance. He's a fellow actuary, but uh, also have many other qualifications, so he's uh, clearly well qualified to talk to us on the topic. He will present for around 40-45 minutes, and after that there will be um, enough time for, for questions. David? Thanks, Andre. Morning, everyone. Feels like a long way to walk across here. Um, and thanks for all sitting nice and close to the front so I can see you. That's, that's great. Um, I'm talking about dividends and dividend policy and capital management. And I guess the first half is going to be uh, relatively generic and hopefully interesting about dividends and dividend policies for companies not particularly looking at insurers. Uh, as I was doing my research for this, certainly I found it quite, quite interesting and just discussing with, with Andre who, who, who saw some of the slides before, so, some results look quite odd. And then the second half really is going to look at things that are more directly relevant to us. Um, how we deal with dividends from a capital management perspective, how we deal with it in our, our, our also in our projections, uh, are there any interactions with the risk appetite? Um, and uh, our, our Milliman's global head of marketing, Pam Cohen, has been with us for this week. And she was delighted at how accessible the presentations have been and how they weren't very, very technical. So there are actually, I think, two formulas in my, my presentation. So don't be scared, uh, but we'll, we'll see how we get with that. So this graph in some ways is a bizarre graph. This shows how the payout ratio for dividends for U.S. companies has decreased from fairly high levels, maybe kind of fairly high from what we're used to, to frankly what is kind of bizarrely low levels that doesn't make much sense at all. And the key message here is that dividend policies and payout ratio things change over time for, for a range of different reasons. And it'd be worthwhile to understand um, whether the changes that we would have in, in South Africa from a capital management perspective, from a, from a tax perspective, from a, a SAM perspective, might mean that actually what we've done with dividends before won't necessarily apply in future. Um, so there are a couple of reasons for this, for this massive decrease in the payout ratio. And I guess one of them is the increased popularity of share buybacks. So if you're using your excess capital to buy back your shares rather than pay out dividends, your payout ratio, narrowly defined, is going to be decreasing. And there are good and bad reasons to be doing share buybacks. You might think it is uh, because your shares are very undervalued. You might recognize that capital gains are less taxed than dividends in the US. Therefore, it is actually tax efficient to do share buybacks rather than pay dividends. Or it might be that your management have employee share options. And like the fact that share buybacks are going to be increasing the price and dividends are going to decrease the price, therefore, hey, why not actually do it this way? So there's some good and bad reasons there. Interestingly, uh, if you look at South African tax rates on capital gains, which seem to be increasing every year to, to what I, I frankly believe are slightly worrying levels, compared to dividend taxes, it looks to me like dividends are currently the, the way to go rather than the share buyback. And unfortunately, what that means to me is that chances are dividend taxes are going to be increased. Because if there clearly is this difference and capital gains are getting taxed far more, hey, why not pay out lots of dividends and therefore, and then if you want to raise additional capital, raise additional capital thereafter. Um, so I suspect Treasury will be looking at, at that at some point. Um, the other thing that's interesting to me is that in February 2016, if I was just one snapshot, 90% of listed US companies weren't paying any dividends at all. 
um, which again is quite a, a, an odd statistic. Uh, in terms of people who've been paying dividends for a long time, the Bank of New York Mellon has paid dividends every year since 1785, which is about 230 years. So an unbroken track record of dividends for 230 years uh, is, is, is fairly something special. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about different types of policies, what management should and shouldn't do. Um, Benjamin Graham, many, known to you as the author of The Intelligent Investor and Warren Buffett's uh, mentor, uh, he said that managers should just give all the spare capital back to shareholders immediately so that they could, could allocate it. But that's obviously not what really is done very often. And the last point that I'm not really going to be talking much more about share buybacks or dividend reinvestment schemes or script dividends, even though those are interesting and important, uh, there's only so much we can talk about in one presentation. Um, okay, so this is the, the broad outline, and actually I'm spend about half the time talking about the, the, the first piece, and we're going to move through through the rest of it. So, um, I'm now moving this, and not that, that's interesting. Okay, there we go. Okay, so in terms of dividend theory, um, there are basically three and a bit components of typical dividend theories, and the first is maybe a slightly old-fashioned name is the burden hand theory. Shareholders would rather have a certain cash dividend right here and now, rather than maybe worry about some possibility of capital growth down the line. But in some ways, that's also a little bit naive. If the company is going to be able to invest that capital wisely and grow it, then you're going to be sort of three or four birds down the line, maybe. So uh, that, that's, that's maybe a slightly outdated view, except for the impact on agency theory, which we will touch on as well. Um, then a signaling theory is pretty, pretty key uh, in that... If you think that your prospects for your, your company are going to be very, very good and you're going to be making lots of additional profits in the future, you might be happy to pay out more dividends now to reflect the fact that actually you're going to be able to pay out even more dividends in the future. You're not worried about preserving capital, not worried about having to cut your dividends. So in that case, growth in dividends is a signal of management's confidence about their future prospects. Slightly uncomfortably, you could also say that, well, management's confidence about their growth prospects means they want to retain capital in order to support that growth. So potentially a lowering of dividends or a lower payout ratio could also potentially be a signal for, for growth. And we are going to touch on some of the, the, the empirical evidence as well as the theoretical, theoretical evidence for that. Agency theory is possibly one of the, the bigger items we will touch on. And it was very much behind Benjamin Graham's view that don't let management have all this excess capital. They're going to, to do silly things with it. And very uh, superficially, if you have five projects that you can finance, um, with you, or if you've got five projects available to you and you can only finance four of them, rationally you take the four highest earning projects and you would do those. But now suddenly you've got excess capital, you can now embark on that fifth project, whether it has a higher or lower return than your, your target. So by removing the dividend away from management, they can't do silly things like go on consolidation uh, sprees, uh, pay themselves bigger bonuses. There's that kind of inst uh, instills a bit of discipline in in management. Um, it's bizarre. I can actually see that much more clearly than this, given how tiny my little uh, screen is here. Um, and then taxes. I've really touched on taxes a little bit, uh, but depending on the, the balance between capital gains and dividend tax, you see which makes most sense. Ah, thank you. Magic. Okay, so typical dividend policies, and these first two really are the kinds that are most prevalent in reality. And the first is just having a stable dividend policy. You're focused on what your dividends were last year or last period, and you want to have it the same or a little bit higher. And that really is your focus. Um, and as you'll see in later slides, uh, that is a, a fairly common approach in the US. 
A target payout ratio, on the other hand, says that we're going to target to pay out 40% of earnings or 70% of earnings or 80% of earnings. And we'll adjust the actual dividends that we pay based on other factors, including what the dividends were last year, because we would still like to see an increase in dividends. But really, it's the target payout ratio is going to be the, the, the core there. Now, I do need to address some other problems with the slide. Um, in Scrabble, you're only allowed seven tiles on your board, and dividend has eight. Uh, I'm also not sure actually what all these other tiles here are doing, except the fact that it spells a nerd. Um, and these, I really have no idea what's going on there. So this looks a lot more like somebody who's actually used to playing Rummy Cub and is struggling to get down their, their, their first 30, 30 points. So we'll see where that goes to. Okay, then a, a constant payout ratio is a bit of a bizarre theoretical dividend policy where come hell or high water, no matter what happens, you're going to pay out 80% of, uh, of your earnings. It's particularly problematic when your earnings are negative, so it's obviously not absolutely cut and dried. And you do see it uh, maybe slightly artificially in regulatory environments where you're required to retain a certain portion of your earnings, either indefinitely or until you've built up your capital to a certain level, for example, in, in Nigeria. So it's a bit of an artificial one, not something you're really going to see in practice. And then the residual dividend model, I would imagine to many of us, feels like the rational model. Forget about what your earnings were last year and your dividends were last year. Forget about what you think about your dividends next year. Let's just be rational and say, how much capital do we need to support our business? And anything more than that, we pay out as a dividend. If that means nothing, if that means more than all of our earnings for this year, so be it. Um, for privately held companies, for closely held subsidiaries of a group, that might well actually be the dividend policy that is put in place. Uh, we're actually currently doing some work for a large multinational looking to acquire another business, and their sense is that they actually want to have enough capital in that business just to be able to, uh, uh, just so they don't have to recapitalize it more often than every five years. They want to hold a very, very small amount of capital within that business. They just want to target kind of a one or five year sensitivity, and everything else they strip out to hold their capital at a central level so they can allocate it more efficiently across their group. So I'm not really going to talk that much more about group issues and allocating capital across a group, but absolutely your dividend policy at a group and at a subsidiary level is going to influence how you're going to manage capital across the group and allows you to talk about cool words like fungibility. Um, but other than that, the residual dividend model isn't that common in practice, and it's very much because of signaling theory, and because of very strong preferences for growth in dividends, for massively strong preferences for not cutting dividends and certainly not suspending dividends. Now, Melinda Digliani, who had a lot of theories about irrelevance, also had a theory about dividend irrelevance. And what they said is, hang on, why should dividends matter to a shareholder? If I'm not getting as much cash income out of the share as I want, I can sell a portion of my shares and generate cash that way. If I'm getting too much in the way of dividends, well, I can just reinvest it back in the share, and I've got my own income position where I like. Um, and that maybe talks to the, uh, uh, again, maybe slightly outdated view that uh, pensioners would like to have higher dividend-paying stocks than get this regular income. And I suppose in that case, it's somewhat valid. You could adjust that by reinvesting or setting down shares. But it does really depend on there being no taxes at all, or at least taxes that are completely irrelevant based on sale decisions and so on. Um, no transaction costs, and that's no transaction costs both for paying the dividends and for selling and buying shares on the one hand, but also for the company in terms of raising capital. Because if you say dividend policy doesn't matter, then obviously the company can pay out dividends and raise capital completely without friction, and then obviously in reality there would be some transaction costs there. 
infinitely divisible shares. I mean, I guess that really does feel like a bit of a theoretical concern. And then, of course, that agency costs don't matter and there's no information content. So it's a nice theory, but like many of Milan Deglani's theories in practice, they are quite different. Um, you guys, of course, all know the difference between theory and practice. In theory, they're the same, and in practice, they're not. Uh, those of you who aren't laughing, I'm assuming it's because you've heard me say that one before. Um, okay, so dividend policies in South Africa, um, and for a lot of this, uh, sort of a shout out to Ferry Gilbert and Mathan, who wrote a paper in 2005 called Dividend Policy in South Africa. And so they did a lot of the literature review that I'm going to be relying on. So all the way back to 1983, uh, the, the views from management in South Africa were they're going to pursue a, a fairly conservative dividend policy, actively managing it based on your earnings, and the continuity of payments and stable payout ratios were key. So go back 30 years and stable payouts and stable uh, well, continued payments and stable payout ratios were, were key. Um, and they were f chiefly influenced by last year's earnings and next year's earnings. So again, far more along the lines of a stable dividend policy or maybe a target payout ratio and not this uh, residual idea that maybe from an actuarial perspective uh, in some way feels, feels like it might be useful. Uh, 2001, so a few years on, um, a clear focus that changes in dividend policy would be a big deal. Uh, you wouldn't want to unnecessarily change dividend policy because that may, may speak to market. And more than two-thirds said that we would avoid making changes in the dividends that needs to be reversed. So rather than increase our dividends per share by 10% this year, and next have to say, sorry, we're going to have to go back, take a conservative approach and say maybe only have a 2% or a 5% increase, or in fact no increase at all, such that in the next year there'd be a far greater probability of being able to pay that. And this is the first part where it starts to mean to, to occur that some ability to model this and understand what that variable in dividends might be and what dividend decisions today might affect our possible dividend decisions later on and how that interacts with capital management overall. Um, yes, you should aim to maintain an uninterrupted record of dividend payments. Um, some of you may have heard of the dividend aristocrats. Uh, I don't know if it was first a theme or then uh, an ETF, but it is now an ETF and a theme. In the US, there are companies who have uh, 25 years of growing dividends and the views that these should be really high quality, fantastic companies. Now imagine if you are one of those dividend aristocrats, or if you've been growing your dividends every year for 23 years. Think how much more focused you are going to be on making absolutely certain that you can maintain and grow your dividend. So if anything, it's likely to actually lead to a slightly conservative approach around your current dividends, because you'd be desperately keen not to have to change in the future. Imagine if you're Bank of New York Mellon with a 230 odd year track record of paying dividends. How much appetite do you think you have to have to cut your dividend? Can you imagine being the board or the CEO who says, you know what, uh, dividends this year aren't going to happen? So your own track record can both uh, instill a, a place in your investors' minds and, and maybe, in theory, lower your cost of capital by increasing your share price by having people demanding your shares, but also automatically changes your own risk appetite from a, a dividend perspective. Um, and two-thirds, this is back to 2001, two-thirds uh, of, of, of management of these companies believe the company should have a targeted dividend payout ratio. So again, what we'll see is that in South Africa, these targeted dividend payout ratios are quite a big deal, slightly less so in the US. Um, okay, and then, this is really just comparing South African attitudes and uh, US attitudes. This was last done in 2009. Um, so the vast, vast majority of both South African and US firms consider that prior dividends per share is a fundamental determinant of this year's dividend per share. We don't want to cut it, we want to increase it, and forget about what happens to payout ratios and the rest of it, that is the first and foremost issue that's really, really important. 
But then what's interesting is that uh, South African firms seem relatively more relaxed about potentially having to cut a dividend, whereas U.S. firms, 94% of U.S. firms, want to avoid pay, uh, cutting uh, a dividend per share. So that's why you can understand the South African firm is a little bit more focused on a payout ratio approach. We're going to pay out close to a fixed percentage of your earnings, and if your earnings decrease, then your dividends decrease, whereas for U.S. firms, that payout ratio is less important compared to the actual dividend payouts and the growth in that. Similarly, the maintaining smooth dividends, far more important in the U.S. than in South Africa, and uh, having to reverse dividend changes, 90% uh, of U.S. firms are saying that that really is an absolute no-no. So although South African firms tend to be somewhat conservative sometimes from a capital management perspective, of course, this is not just financial services firms, this is all, 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 all firms, you can see here that their focus on absolute stability is a much bigger deal in the U.S., and we know that's a bigger deal in the U.S. from the quarterly earnings forecast, where it's absolutely imperative that your earnings go up and up and up and it leads to Enron and other sorts of, of awkwardness. This shouldn't really be a surprise. But even that for staffing firms, not wanting to reverse your dividends, not wanting to cut your dividends um, is, is key. Um, now, from a group consideration perspective, uh, uh, the, 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 the fungibility of capital, the ability to move capital from subsidiary into the parent, that obviously will, will, will have an impact as well. Okay, so this slide is, I guess it's a, this, this is the formula, right? So, so bear with me, really is straightforward. And I'm certain that all of you will have been exposed to most of this in the past. It's really nothing, nothing complicated. But to my mind, it's a, it's a really useful, interesting, clever, small, imperfect tool to understand uh, what could possibly be a reasonably coherent target payout ratio. And the reason this is close to my heart is that when we do kind of a, a transaction work, we're looking at projecting income statements or balance sheets. It's far too often that I see someone projecting earnings growth at a particular level, dividends at a particular level, and never bother to check what that actually requires for the return on equity. When you actually put the balance sheet next to that and you see how much your equity is growing based on retained earnings, you can see that you maybe start out with a fairly attractive 25% return on equity, but based on high growth and high dividend payouts, your required return on equity is going to have to keep on increasing until it gets to 80, 90, or 120% which is very, very clearly incoherent. So this is a good check when you are doing projections. Is this thing internally consistent? What are you actually implicitly assuming about return on equity? So in this little model here, we are, I'm saying we assume constant return on equity and a constant payout ratio, but equally enough, you could put in what your own hopes and dreams are for the projection and see what it implies about what your payout ratio might needs to be or what your return on equity would have to be and can sense check whether that makes sense. So in the same sort of structure, then, uh, earnings is going to be basically your return on equity times equity, that's straightforward. Your increase in equity is going to be the equity, so the earnings that you don't retain, so one minus your payout ratio is your retention ratio, how much your earnings retain. So your earnings growth, which is this year's earnings over last year's earnings, is going to be driven by the growth in your equity if you have a constant return on equity. So your growth then is going to be a function of your, how much of your return on equity you don't pay out. Now, uh, this is very consistent with the Gordon growth model, which you should remember is next is dividends divided by the required return, less the growth. And that assumes an absolutely constant growth in dividends and what would your share price be worth. But the coolest thing for me is that you can take this and reset it to work out what the PE multiple, and those of you who are very sharp on this, that this is actually a forward PE multiple rather than a trading PE multiple, what the PE multiple would be in theory based on these assumptions. So if your return on equity is higher than your required return, in theory, you should retain all your capital and just keep reinvesting at this much higher rate that you can, you can earn. Of course, in practice, if you are going to be assuming that you're going to be able to have a return on equity of 70% for the next 40,000 years, 
you're soon going to be owning more than your market, more than your country's GDP, more than the world's GDP. So there are also obviously constraints there. But it's useful so, trick to understand. Similarly, if your return on equity is lower than your required return, well, the simple answer is pay out everything immediately because you're actually wasting shareholders' money. So just to explain that in a graph, if your return on equity is 10% and your required return is 15%, as your payout ratio increases, so does the PE multiple. And similarly, if you're actually earning a better return on your assets than shells require you to do, you should actually be paying out as little as possible. You get silly sort of negative answers over here, which is why I haven't shown that. But as you increase your payout ratio, you're actually going to be losing those opportunities to, uh, to make money for shareholders. So this isn't really directly related to dividend policy, but when we are going to be looking at what a reasonable target payout ratio could be, you absolutely have to consider what your expected return on equity is going to be, what you think you can achieve, what your dividends need, need to be. Now, for some industries, you could say, well, we're just going to have massive margin expansion. We are going to be very, very efficient with our working capital. We're going to be, be allow our return on equity to increase and increase and increase, and we don't have to worry too much about this. But while margin expansion and capital efficiency are obviously possibilities in the insurance world and South Africa or anywhere, fundamentally your regulatory capital and therefore your economic capital, whatever your required capital is, is going to increase broadly now with your overall volumes. So it's very, very difficult just to keep on sweating your, your capital. So I do think that you need to say, well, what is our targeted return on equity? What do we think is achievable? Um, therefore, based on uh, our growth prospects, how much of our earnings each year do we need to retain on average? Again, not necessarily every year, but certainly to get you to coherent, uh, a coherent place. Um, of course, that's the model and that's the theory. And the theory says that in order to grow, you need to retain more capital, more equity, to support that growth. Um, which is both intuitively it makes sense, and also we can see from that particular limited formula it does make sense. But then two guys, Arnold and Asnes, wrote a paper called Surprise, High Dividends Don't, oh, sorry, Surprise High, that was really much better if it had just been smooth, but anyway. Surprise, higher dividends equal higher earnings growth. Empirically, in the US, the companies and the periods of higher dividends actually relates to higher next 10 years earnings growth, which is difficult to understand. So of course, you know, it's, it's a model, it's imperfect. And some of the thoughts there is that maybe this has to do with signaling theory. Those management teams who are very optimistic about their future prospects and very optimistic about their future ability to grow earnings and therefore pay out higher dividends, they were far more eager to pay out higher dividends right here and now. And then lo and behold, we got the higher dividends later on and higher earnings later on. So that's far more about the information that management have. And yes, the fact that the return on equity isn't constant. They knew that the growth process were fantastic. They would possibly be able to increase the return on equity. So it still, still all works, but it's certainly surprising. Uh, for Merlin, 2011, did a similar exercise for South Africa and found the same conclusion. Well, I should say there have also been other studies that said, well, may maybe not quite sure. And did we look at this on nominal growth and real growth? So there are some issues. Um, so that's half the slides. So I thought I'd better introduce a picture. And those who know me will know that I do like XKCD. Um, so the question to me is that is paying high dividends the way to create high earnings growth? And hopefully you'd all agree that no, that, that, that's not the answer. That's not the conclusion that we should take from this. We should just be aware that uh, retaining uh, uh, earnings doesn't necessarily automatically relate to, to, to high earnings. Okay, so that's the end of the, the, the general stuff. Now we're going to start moving to more what this actually might mean practically in your work and capital management. 
So dividend asymmetry, this is entirely obvious and, and not really that insightful, um, but it might be worth just thinking through some of these things and then uh, uh, how it impacts your, your awesome and your risk appetite and so on. So this is a pretty scary looking crab and apparently this is how they, how they, how they look, massively asymmetrical. So I've already mentioned that negative dividends are not possible. So right there and there we have the issue, if you're modeling your dividends, there is a natural asymmetry. As we know, anytime there are asymmetries or nonlinearities, we need to be very careful about deterministic modeling and about linear assumptions because it may well not be the case. So the first one they said that dividends can't be negative. But we also generally accept, and this is you know, maybe particularly true in the short-term insurance space, but also true in, in life insurance space when it comes to maybe lapses and, and pandemics, that downside risks tends to be nastier than upside risks. So you would expect life to be going relatively happily, relatively happily, and have quite a, quite a bad whack. And again, that means we're going to have this asymmetry that gets introduced. But there are other restrictions. So it's not just a question of whether our earnings are negative. That means we can't now pay out uh, a dividend. But if you've set yourself a target of maintaining two times SCR coverage and your business is growing, you actually need positive earnings just to increase your capital base so that the increased business volume, which is going to drive an increased SCR, mean you are still maintaining your two times or whatever your targeted SCR coverage is. So even if you're making profits, you may not be making sufficient profits to keep track with your, your the required growth in equity. So again, the level at which this asymmetry kicks in is in fact at negative earnings, but at just some sort of relatively low level of earnings. Um, it's also much easier typically to distribute excess capital through higher dividends or through a special dividend than it is to actually go to the market and say, please, would you, would you mind if we had some additional capital? Now, in the insurance world in South Africa, that's doubly true. So yes, you know, it is possible to raise debt, and yes, parent companies can raise debt, but by and large, raising debt is more difficult uh, in uh, an insurance regulation environment than it might be for another type of company. And uh, raising equity has all sorts of signaling issues and information issues, and it's expensive. And it's probably more expensive, and I might suggest maybe more of an issue in South Africa than it is in the US. The US market is very much bigger, very much more liquid. So maybe it's partly why they are uh, 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 happy to kind of keep paying out stable dividends, even if it's eroding the capital base, um, even if they're paying out a much higher payout ratio than they might like, because they know they can always raise debt to finance a dividend. And in fact, studies have shown that yes, management in the US would be quite happy to raise debt capital to allow them to continue paying dividends, which again, m to me feels like a, a, an odd thing, but you can understand there's that massive focus on paying out stable dividends. Um, and then the last point is also obvious, but maybe it requires some thought. If you do fall below your targeted capital levels, be it two times SCR or 1.3 times ECAP, or whatever the answer may be, how long is it going to take you to get back to that level by retaining more earnings than you would ordinarily? And that's a function of what your average expected payout ratio would be. If you would typically be expected and able to pay out 95% of your earnings as dividends because your business isn't growing that fast, then you've got 95% of your earnings that you could potentially retain over and above what you would ordinarily need to justify as the growth, and that can go to fill up the gap in your equity. If, on the other hand, you're having to retain 95% of your earnings just to keep your capital base growing to support your growth, you've only then got an extra 5% of earnings that you could retain to go towards building up your capital base. So if you have a massively profitable, high return on equity, low growth business, then maybe you can recover that capital loss fairly quickly. If you have a high growth, lower margin business, you're having to retain a lot of your earnings as it stands, 
then if you fall below that level, it might be two years, five years, ten years before you can get back to that point, and then frankly, you may be looking to need to do some sort of capital raising in the interim. So these sorts of dividend asymmetries will lead through into what I'll be suggesting around some, some dividend uh, modeling proposals. Liquidity, very briefly, there are two aspects to liquidity. Uh, a lot of the literature talks about how liquid shares, as in where there's a deep market and they trade regularly, tend not to pay out very high dividends. And uh, the thinking there is that maybe Miller and Modigliani weren't completely stupid after all if it's very easy for investors to create synthetic dividends by, sh by selling then maybe it's more important that they can uh, uh, retain the, 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 the earnings. Which is a very, very illiquid stock. One of the key ways for shareholders to get a return is actually to get dividends. That's really not what I want to talk about in terms of liquidity. What I want to talk about liquidity is how your dividends actually affects your capital management from a liquidity risk perspective. If you're going to be paying a massive dividend once a year, you're going to be building up cash and capital right up to that point, and then you're going to be paying it all out. Your liquidity profile before and after dividend payment is completely different, which in some ways is quite awkward because how are you going to decide what management steps you need to make, what investment steps you need to make, how you need to manage liquidity in your policy wording and reinsurance treaties if you can have these massive variations in the actual cash that you have. Um, so it's typically more relevant for short-term insurers where the, the potential for uh, hail or uh, some sort of other catastrophe and the need to pay out claims suddenly is, is a bigger deal. Um, uh, but it, it also does affect uh, life insurance as well. Um, uh, you know, as, as in a statutory act, it's quite easy to say, yes, the maximum dividend is this based on long-term insurance act and it's going to get the car, make sure the car level is still above one times. But of course, in practice, we're going to be talking a, a different level from that. And in practice, we need to be considering liquidity. What will this do to your, your spreading requirements when you pay out that dividend? What will that do to your liquidity position able to pay out and meet certain claims? And I've seen precious little discussion of liquidity when I see dividend policies. A lot more on car coverage and ECAP coverage and all the rest of that, and very little around what it actually means around liquidity and how we need to manage liquidity differently leading up to and immediately after a, a, a big dividend. Um, so one of the impractical suggestions is if you have like a half-yearly or even quarterly dividend payment, life's a lot easier to manage at liquidity risk because you aren't building up these huge amounts. So within the group context, uh, maybe a, a quarterly payment from the subsidiaries up to the centre isn't such a, a bad idea. Okay, now, I mean, risk appetite is, it's very relevant to the presentation, it's also partly because I wanted to talk about it, but it's also partly because the modern techniques that I'm going to talk about um, can be pretty useful more generally within your own risk appetite. Um, I've seen a fair number of risk appetites and they vary quite a lot in terms of what people understand them to be in. So this is my view of what I think a good example would be. That's going to include a high-level qualitative statement on the overall attitude towards risk um, and, and, and how that might differ across different risk types. You like credit risk, you don't like market risk, you like underwriting risk and so on. Um, you have to define actually what you view as risk, that, that's important. And a lot of people leave out the, the performance side rather just than looking at the risk side. You do need to be saying, well, what are you actually hoping to achieve from a, a return perspective? But then you need to have a quantitative, ideally multi-dimensional measure of your appetite for risk. Um, SCR coverage, regulatory coverage, the probability of maintaining regulatory coverage, earnings at risk, dividends at risk, liquidity at risk, maximum events from, uh, uh, from short-term insurance and so on. Um, and links down into your low-level risks. And it's really in that uh, quantitative space that maybe needs to understand, well, how your dividends are going to interact with that. So, I mean, I've had clients who've targeted, you know, 1.5 times the SCR, and the FSB's response to their author's document has been, well, why 1.5? 
Um, and if you said, well, we actually want to maintain regulatory coverage of 1.0 times in 98% of scenarios, 99% of scenarios, 99.97% of scenarios, we've done some basic modeling and that's how we draw the 1.5, then you've got a coherent story there. But just a 1.5 times target, well, that, that's not really that clear. Um, so anytime you're going to have some sort of multiple measure, it's quite useful to understand what the confidence or you have around that, or what the frequency of breaching that might be. And that's going to require a little bit of basic modeling. Um, other factors that you might be interested in would include uh, the average solvency coverage ratios, both like mean and mode. But one of the key things here is that if you are targeting 1.5 in terms of SCR coverage, does that mean you pay down dividends down to 1.5? And if not, well, what is this other higher level that you're happy to pay dividends down to? How are you actually going to make the decision on where you need to be? And I would suggest that in the same way you need this 1.5 or 2 times or 2.5 times uh, target level in your, your, your risk appetite statement, you should also have a pretty clear view of your target on what you're going to do from a dividend perspective, and you need some modeling to help you uh, guide to, you to that. Um, the probability of being below target. What is your appetite for being below regulatory coverage of 1 times? What's your appetite for being below regulatory coverage of 1.5 times? What's your appetite for having earnings at risk on a different level? The, the, the probability of that happening, for me, is absolutely key and fundamental to, to this being a, a coherent statement. Um, how much time are you going to spend below threshold? And importantly for me, in a 1 in 10-year shock or a 1 in 20-year shock or a 1 in 50-year shock, that will most likely bring you below your target. Because if you're not, you clearly are nowhere near your target beforehand. How long is it going to take you to get back to that point? Now, we don't talk that much about recover, recovery plans in South Africa, but certainly it is good practice as part of your overall risk management system to have an idea, a plan of what you're going to do if things go really badly. And one of the scenarios is you're actually now 80% um, below your targeted capital position. What are you going to do? Are you happy to wait the two or five or ten years to recover slowly? Or do you, in fact, need to do something more, more deliberate? You need to change your risk, change your reinsurance, or raise capital? Uh, so those are some of the questions I think could be quite useful to, to answer from a modeling perspective. Now, the also, I think, has also maybe brought dividend policy to the forefront for, for many people. Um, I don't think it's possible to rationally project your balance sheet and income statement without a dividend policy. I mean, one school of thought is, well, let's just ignore dividends because we don't have to pay dividends. Let's do a projection and see how fantastic things are going to look if we retain all our earnings. But that's not an accurate picture of where you expect it to be. It's certainly not going to tie into your business plans, which you all know is an important part of what's going on there. And I think it probably gives a full sense of security around what your capital levels are going to be. And certainly there's nothing for you to understand what a risk, uh, what a scenario or stress might be in year one or year three if you're going to do something along those lines. Um, you also get kind of awkward interactions. So now, if you're retaining all this capital and you're modeling it thoroughly, you're going to have all this additional investment return on this excess capital. Is that going to be going into your income statement and how are you going to be comparing that against prior years? So that really isn't, uh, isn't very useful. Another fairly common option I've seen is to effectively follow a residual dividend policy. Anything above our target level, we're just going to pay out straight, which is probably quite unlikely to be what you're going to do in practice, but at least it's something you can do. But it can also be a little bit awkward if you're targeting two times, but your current capital level is 2.8 times. Does that mean day zero of your projection? You're going to pay out 0.8 times of your of your, your equity base straight out to shareholders. You need to actually decide what you're going to do. But there are other awkward issues that if your your SCR coverage is now exactly two times in your base scenario projection, on some of your more moderate shocks, your one and ten year shock, you may well be able to maintain your two times SCR coverage. 
but just by paying lower dividends. So now you've got a shock scenario, but your capital position doesn't seem to change. So that's not the end of the world, but in that case, I would suggest you need to be looking at things like a dividend at risk and actually show there what the dividends were before and after the shock. Look at how much of that, uh, that return is going to be, is going to be different. Um, so uh, in theory, what you'd like to do is have some sort of realistic, formula influenced, and I use the word influenced there importantly, formula influenced dividend policy that actually fairly closely matches what you think you would do in practice, and you put that into your also projections and it works formulaically in those different scenarios. So we're going to talk a little bit now about how you might derive that and what some modeling techniques you can be supported. So again, realistic formula influence dividend policy because influence doesn't mean specification. I don't think anybody, certainly not me, would suggest that you set your dividend policy in stone and you always just follow that blindly. That's not what we're about. Sometimes the formula would give you a suggested dividend or a suggested range. Sometimes it would give you the idea of a maximum dividend. You could pay kind of anything up to that. Um, and it would allow you, or you certainly would want to know the answer, what is the probability of cutting a dividend by more than a certain percentage? Um, what's the probability of not meeting a percentage growth target? And probably of actually having paying no dividend at all. Those, to me, would be very interesting measures to get out of this process to understand what does our dividend policy, how does it interact with our risk appetite and our capital levels, what does that mean for our business? Um, similarly, you might actually want to understand average SCR coverage on the years to return. So those are the measures that we'd be looking to target. Now, I like models as much as the next guy. Um, one way to do this would be have a fully-fledged internal model, 100,000 simula simulations, risk-response functions, copulas left, right, and center, calibrated to your millions of years of data, and awesome. That would be great. Um, some of you may have models that are leaning towards those grounds, and I hope you're also then using that in terms of your awesome projections and your dividend policies. Um, if I'm honest, the sweet spot is probably something like option B, where you're looking at a very clearly simplified model, but you're looking at proxies for the different risk components, and you're calibrating it to your own expectations in terms of the mean, and you're calibrating it to your own views, or maybe even just the SCR view of what the 99.5th percentile must be. But maybe you do want to have a specific focus on some of the cat risk components, because in the tails of the distribution beyond 99.5th percentile, it's very likely going to be the cat risk that drive that, depending on your reinsurance program. So that's a little bit of complexity around there, and you can maybe choose different parametric functions of different risks and different ways to combine them. But it's still fairly complicated and not necessarily where I'd start. So where I'd start, in fact, where we have started with some clients is a very trivial, but still useful, shifted log normal distribution of losses, calibrated to your expectations and the SCR is 99.5th percentile. So you have all the information already. Anything you do here would be consistent with your other assumptions that you're making, it would be consistent with your business plans, it would be consistent with your SCR, which you probably are using as a measure of risk. So you aren't doing anything more simple than what you've done before. You're just trying to get a little bit more information out of it. Um, so you can do this in Excel or R or you know, whatever application you want that we certainly use a mixture of Excel and R. And so well, here's a log normal distribution. But a log normal distribution has this kind of skewness that we like. I mean, you could also use normal, but log normal has a skewness that you like. It's a little bit heavier tail. But of course, if this is then a distribution of profits, we've actually got the tail to the right-hand side. So, so that's not good. So what we need to do is flip it around and say now at least we've got the, the tail losses to the left-hand side. But now this is a particularly poor business because there's absolutely no way ever we would ever generate any profits, only losses. So then what you can do is you can just basically shift that distribution over a little bit so that you've got a mean that makes sense based on business plans. You've got the potential for some upside, but you've got a little bit greater uh, downside potential. Um, and this is what you could model as your, your earnings or your change in economic value for the business. 
There are two ways, fine, there are many ways, but there are two key ways. One is to assume that your earnings in each year are independent of the prior year, which is probably a simplification, but it's also easier to do. Um, or you could say, right, let's build some sort of time series here where earnings this year is a function of prior year earnings and some sort of shock. That's still going to give us this 99.5th percentile overall calibration. Um, and yes, that mean reversion issue does have potentially a big impact on the, on the results. Um, so you can do that exercise, you simulate everything that you want, you project for how your SER moves based on the growth in business, you project how your earnings go to different scenarios, you project your dividend policy, you put in that formula different process, and it can target different formulas, different rules, different target payout ratios, different uh, uh, maximum minimum rules, how it relates to your, your, your target capital, what, how the level above which you pay dividends relates to your targeted SER coverage or ECAP coverage. Basically you've got a very, very, very simple but complete model office that says on an absolute high level top-down basis what do you think is going to happen to your capital your earnings your dividends um, and allows you to do all these measures what, what's your uh, uh, probability of not paying out dividends can be what's your uh, likelihood of being below target how much you're going to be increased all those measures come out of this very very easily and it's, it's a fairly easy exercise to do and there are some obvious conclusions that come out of this but maybe they weren't quite so obvious until you actually gone through and understand so the results so yes, higher growth requires lower dividends because you need to be boosting your capital base because we aren't going to be assuming any magical increase in capital efficiency. The average SCR coverage is going to be most likely below the SCR cover ratio above which you're going to pay out dividends. Anytime your ratio gets above, let's say you're going to pay out dividends at 2.5 times SCR. Anytime dividends gets above 2.5, you're going to pay it all out. You're never going to have much upside above 2.5. But if you have a severe shock and you drop to 1.2, then you're going to slowly have several years of growing back up from 1.2 all the way up to 2.5. So you get this asymmetry there, which is going to push your ratio down a little bit. So if you want to, on average, be at 2.5 times SCR, you actually need to pay out dividends at a level above 2.5. I should say this does also depend on how frequently you pay dividends. If you pay dividends every microsecond, the impact is greater than if you pay every, every year, because every year your dividends are then going to grow above 2.5, so you're going to have some sort of excess there. And yes, it also depends on what your uh, required payout ratio is. The more quickly you can recover back up to your targets, uh, the less of an impact this has. So again, you, you get some interesting insights into your business. Um, higher required earnings retentions implies a longer time to return to SCR coverage for the same one in X year shock. I think I have covered that already. Um, a lower average payout ratio implies lower average SCR coverage. Again, because the lower the payout ratio, the less scope you have to move it up. Therefore, in this structure, where you fall well below target, it's going to take you a longer time to get back up there. Um, more frequent dividend declarations increase the likelihood of reaching targets, and this autocorrelation of earnings makes a big, a big difference. If your earnings are completely independent, after a bad year, you've got just as likely to have a good year. But if you're going to have, well, actually, it's going to be a function of last, it's going to be this sort of autoregression, you're quite likely to have several years of underperformance in a row. And that has a fundamentally important impact on what you do around dividend policy, how aggressive you be in dividend policy, how much you want to retain in the background. So that is probably one of the most uh, important assumptions to set based on how much confidence you're going to have in the results. That is the end of my, my slides and presentation. Hopefully that was useful. I'm very happy to answer questions on crabs, XKCD, uh, risk appetite, and maybe even dividends. Thank you.
Thank you, David. Um, I mean, having been been part of this uh, in, in, in my company, looking at the SEL covers in the new SAM world, um, I can relate to a lot of uh, the thinking uh, around the dividend policy, and so on. It, it's, it's quite a critical element in, in setting your your um, uh, SEL cover appetite and limits. We have uh, lots of time for, for questions, so uh, if you can just put up your hand. Thanks, David. Um, just have a question. I'm not sure if you saw the FSB's latest feedback on the South African market and the SER coverage ratios under SAM. Uh, there's a surprisingly large number of companies at well over two. Um, any thoughts on that with regards to dividend? So um, I've had some interesting debates with my clients around where we think the SER coverage should be. And I... I was pushing for, frankly, higher ratios than, than, than they were. I think we all had this view that given the increase in own funds and the increase in SRE, we would expect those ratios to come down, and that probably is the right answer. Um, but there are both maybe technical reasons to, for it to be able to higher than we might have thought, which I'll touch on in a moment, and also very practical reasons. That many of us are quite comfortable with our, how our capital works at the moment. The, the car and the short-term insurance interim measures, that we, we understand and we've got a natural feel for it, the, the market understands, analysts understand where it's going to be. So maybe that increased confidence then means we don't have to be quite as uh, uh, conservative. Whereas when we moved to SAM and we got uh, uh, arguably a more volatile balance sheet, a more volatile SCR, still arguably some uncertainty what the actual SCR calibration will be next year or 2018 maybe, and you know, possible changes thereafter, I think it's appropriate to be maybe a little bit more, more cautious. Um, but I also think there's been very little modeling done on what, a, for example, a two times SCR coverage actually means in terms of your probability of getting below one, one times or the probability of getting below 1.5 times on what would that actually mean for you. So back to the whole idea of certainly listed companies wanting to pay out stable dividends there have been lots of stories about people saying, yes, we, we, we are retaining capital. We just want to see where, where Sam gets to. Uh, because there's less of a, an understanding, less modeling being done to understand how that might go badly, I think companies are probably hanging on to it. Uh, there's been some uh, research in Europe which showed also pretty high solvency to SCR covers. Uh, so I don't know that, I think two times is maybe higher than what end up on average, but uh, I think there are plenty of insurers across Europe that so are well, well above 1.5. Um, and then also if you look at it on a, uh, a market-weighted basis, typically the very largest insurers in South Africa have tended to be relatively conservative and have relatively large balance sheets and have two and a half times, three times, three and a half times car covers. So I think they would probably want to stay there and think the, the sense of that stability and the capital available to do other cool things is, is important. Um, and the other thing is just this little note, because we'll have a discussion on this. If you look at some European companies from a group perspective, what the SCR coverage is, there are some that will appear to be 1.2 times. But what's happened there is that your inability to recognize the surplus funds in a subsidiary means that actually you could have a subsidiary that's 80% of your business with a two and a half times SCR coverage ratio, but actually the 1.5 times excess doesn't flow up into a PLC level. So if you are looking at group levels from a European perspective, I'm not sure that's necessarily the right sort of target for what an individual standalone company would do. Yeah, I think just to, to, to add uh, around the cover, I, I think 
to come back to the dividend policy, um, if you if you want to if you sit on a, a stable and growing dividend, paying that out, you'll probably have to run on a bit of higher cover. And then also another thing is, I think the cover will depend on the on the kind of risks that you take in the business. A life business might might need a different ratio than a, than a non-life, for instance. Absolutely. So yeah, I, mean, I guess Andre's obviously uh, read my presentation better than I have. The key conclusion would be that in order to encourage a stable dividend, especially with uncertainty in experience, uncertainty in regulations, and frankly uncertainty in how this thing will react to a credit downgrade or interest rate volatility or whatever, um, I think it's very natural that actually we will have an extended period of maybe slightly higher than truly absolutely optimally rational SCR covers. Good. Can we have another question? Hi, David. Um, where do you think the IFRS balance sheet should feature um, in setting your dividend policy? So, uh, at the moment, we're relatively lucky in that I think most companies, the IFRS balance sheet behaves relatively similarly to the SAM balance sheet. And the reason I'm saying that so hesitantly is that I am aware of many companies who use zero eyes, which kind of changes the picture quite dramatically. But um, IFRS 17 or IFRS 4 phase 2 is going to change it quite a lot. And I think the picture of earnings is going to look very, very different from the picture of change in SAM surplus. So then there are some important decisions. Do we actually think that we're more kind of very academic actuaries and that residual approach is the right approach? We look at what capital we need and more than that we pay out. Um, or do we say, well, actually, IFRS earnings is what we think is a reasonable measure of what business we've generated. Therefore, we should be paying out some proportion of that. Um, or should it be some sort of payout ratio based on your SAM surplus? Um, I mean, I don't know the answer, but I would expect that IFRS earnings are going to play an important role. I, I don't think there's actually anything wrong with where IFRS 17 has gone to in terms of looking at what is a sustainable earnings profile. I think the idea of not capitalizing big change in assumptions says something quite useful about earnings. Earnings become a far more stable, ongoing measure of the performance of the business. So therefore, if anything, might play a bigger role in dividend policies going forward. Um, for me, the challenges around IFRS and SAM is maybe slightly less about dividends, although it will play a big role, and for more about what you choose to, to hedge and where you're going to manage the risk. And are you going to be optimizing your capital calculation or are you going to be trying to minimize the volatility of IFRS earnings? And that really is the, the mess to me. I think once people have solved that, they, may, they might think what that means for, for dividends. Good. <clears throat> There's a question down the front. Peter, obviously nobody expected people to sit right at the front. <laughs> Hi there. Um, two things. One, just looking at the that, that last question and the answer there, I'd be interested to see what has happened worldwide with the banks because they've they've gone through the entire Basel you know, multi-phase journey and seeing how they are treating their dividend policies and, and, and whether they're using IFRS or whether they're using their capital positions, liquidity ratios, or, or all those other lovely metrics they've got to look after. Um, it may give us a, a better idea for where, you know, as the other part of the financial services industry, where we're going to go as insurers. So that's the, um, the, the one thing. And then the other is just, as you were going through 
description of the modeling and how, how you go, you know, how you would model your dividends. It felt an awful lot like the work we did in the early noughties, where we were trying to model smooth bonus funds in stochastic environments and trying to figure out what those bonus payouts were going to be. I'm just thinking that there probably are actuaries who did a bunch of work 10 years ago on, on that sort of thing, maybe worthwhile looking at the experience they had as they were going through this, rather than starting entirely from scratch with our processes, figure out how, you know, how do we learn from those and leapfrog so we don't have to, you know, don't have to reinvent the wheel. Thanks, Peter. I, and I didn't specifically look at the banks, but certainly from a U.S. perspective, U.S. GAAP earnings is uh, the, the, the holy grail, and U.S. GAAP earnings, by definition, are fairly stable. So I really would imagine that still maintaining a strong earnings focus. But as the slides also indicated, in the U.S., the focus above everything else is on maintaining or slightly increasing dividends, and then, if need be, raise additional capital, uh, which to me feel, feels foreign, but I guess it is a foreign country. Um, so I would imagine there that is what didn't we pay last year. Let's try to increase it this year if we possibly can, if we can possibly afford out of our current capital, or maybe raise additional capital. And only if truly all hell is breaking loose are we going to, to cut it. Um, so maybe that's not all that interesting. But yeah, sure, I think it would still be useful to see how, as the regulations change, um, I, I'm not suggesting for a second that those risk committees and capital management committees didn't consider the capital and earnings in making that decision. Um, in terms of the model, yeah, absolutely, right? I think um, there's a, a, a ton of actual work be done in the space of uncertainty and uh, modeling uh, uh, market uh, variation and guarantee costs and asymmetries. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but two things. One is that it's actually a, by number of insurers, relatively small number that actually do much in the smooth bonus of this profits world. Um, so for a large number of insurers, they don't have those, those learnings in-house. But yeah, maybe someone next year can do a presentation on bridging that gap. And the second thing is that the, the bulk of with profits, and I'm probably going to be corrected here, but I think the bulk of with profits is probably smooth bonus, where it's very much market movements and market volatility rather than short-term insurance claims or mortality or expenses or, or other sorts of areas. And I would suggest also that probably more of the modeling work that was done around smooth bonus in the last 15 years was probably quite light on the credit risk side, whereas I think we've taken an increased focus on credit risk and increased exposure to credit risk. So there may be one or two new tricks that need to come out of here. Um, so in, in the same way that those developing fully-fledged internal capital models would have looks to the experience on modeling investment guarantees and the technology required and the ESG required and all this to, to build those, there's obviously a lot of learning that can come in there. Um, I guess what I'm hoping for here is that those who don't have that experience in that track record, that technology, realize that there's something you can do that is simple and useful, and literally by the end of next week, you could probably have some sort of results, imperfect such they are, but still consistent with what you already are doing from a risk and capital management framework. So you aren't making any new mistakes or really too many new approximations. Is just trying to get the most information out of what you're doing. And maybe it will actually highlight problems in what you're doing, which is also, I guess, positive. Thanks, Peter. I can't see any. Please wave if you Okay, seems to be we're all done. Everybody wants to go to lunch. Um, th thank you, uh, David. I, I think it's it's quite topical and we enjoyed it um, and enjoyed the lunch. Thank you, everyone.